Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. and thank you for joining us for this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. My name is Erin Molino bailey I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner at Cognitive Behavior Institute. This week with us, we're very excited to be joined by Steve O'Neill, who is the Open Note Specialist in Behavioral and Mental Health and is faculty at the Center of Bioethics at Harvard Medical School. Steve is also an adjunct assistant professor at Simmons University and a social work consultant at the Massachusetts Medical Benevolent Society in Waltham. He is especially interested in how the transparency of open note writing in behavioral health can foster great trust and partnership, improve patient engagement, and contribute to destigmatizing mental illness and behavioral health. So thank you so much for being here with us, Steve. Uh, our listeners are very excited to hear today uh, with everything you're going to share with us. And could we begin by talking about how you got involved? Uh, we know you have quite an extensive background in social work ethics. So can you tell us how you got involved in this area of social work? Sure, glad to. So, so my role at um, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, uh, which is where I'm based still, um, is I, I was overseeing all the mental health and behavioral health practices for the hospital. So that was one role. I had a role in that in terms of both as a practitioner myself, but also overseeing most of the um, most of the therapy services, inpatient and outpatient. Um, and then I also was associate director of ethics there. Um, and uh, did ethics and got started in open notes really back um, in the 80s when uh, Lachlan, Dr. Lachlan Faro and I started our ethics service at the hospital. We made it as a policy at the hospital that we would, um, we would by policy, we would make all of our notes, our consultation notes immediately available to the source patient and, their, and, and all of their immediate family or loved ones, whoever was involved in the consultation. And those are usually highly fractious, intractable conflicts that we are dealing with. Um, and we found that really in sharing notes directly with, uh, with these patients and families, that it really mitigated uh, a lot of the risk and cut down on a lot of the uh, legal noise, if you will, uh, at the hospital. And our hospital had been, uh, uh, we started the, at Beth Israel, they started the very first electronic medical record in the world was started there back in 1985, we went online. So we've had a long history. We started putting mental health notes when I felt secure enough back in 91, we started putting all of our notes online right in the middle of, uh, you know, all of the, they're not segregated in a different area. They're all a part of the, the patient's medical record. And patients, we began to, uh, myself and several of the other staff, the clinicians, the therapists, we started saying to patients, if you ever want to see what's written in your chart, what I've written about you, glad to show that to you at any time. Um, and I was worried, particularly all my paranoid patients would flee. Um, and in fact, we found, I found it particularly just the opposite. So we had started doing this transparency notion uh, at the hospital. And then um, back in uh, back 11 years ago, uh, the hospital uh, began the very first pilot in primary care uh, medicine where they began to share notes, open, open notes with patients with, through a secure portal. We began to share them. And then we decided that in uh, 2013 um, that we would have all the other, our hospitals said, we're going to open up all the notes for all the specialty practices. 
psychiatry held back a little bit. So we decided our mental health notes, we held them back, but then we decided we were going to go live and we opened them up um, in uh, 2014, really this month, um, uh, you know, um, eight, seven years ago. So, uh, so we've had the experience of having opened up notes. And we, when we did this as a research project, we also decided to, we've always um, tried to partner with other health institutions around the country to open up the notes so that we, you know, if we say, well, you know, the easy criticism is, well, you're opening up notes in an academic medical center, and that's an urban part of Boston. It may not apply to my area here in, you know, Pennsylvania or whatever, and uh, or someplace else. And so we partnered with a couple others, specifically uh, Geisinger Health in uh, in Pennsylvania. So we had a rural group, and then we harbor we did with Harborview in Seattle, uh, which is a core inner city population um, safety net hospital. And then since that time, we've partnered with many, many other uh, networks and stuff. So we've helped basically 260 health networks to open up notes, and about a quarter of them have opened up mental health notes um, for many years now, actually. So that's so I started in the social work department. My staff knew that I had done a lot of this with sharing notes um, and um, asked all of our staff to think about whether they would open up their notes too. And I gave them an option of either, they could either decline if they wanted to, or they could select a certain number of patients that they wanted to kind of felt like this is a safe cohort of group of patients that I can open up and see how that went, or they could open up fully. And out of the 29 uh, therapists that I was overseeing was the 25 of them chose to open up uh, and almost all of them fully just opened up, just opened up their notes completely. Um, some of them did it selectively, but then ramped up and everybody went full bore um, uh, fairly quickly. There's a few folks that held back and still are nervous about it and stuff, but, um, and that's true in all systems. You know, everyone is worried about, oh my gosh, is it gonna have, be bad for patients or, you know, disrupt the relationship or whatever and stuff. So that's how yeah. we started basically. That apprehension, let's let's touch base a little bit more about sure. that before we actually dive into the Cures Act role that's upcoming here in April of 2021. But that apprehension that you just mentioned, um, we know that sometimes clinicians are apprehensive about how to make their notes, about making their notes available for a variety of reasons. And what are some of the common reasons that you see for therapists not wanting to make those notes available and how can they overcome those barriers? It's a good, good question. So, um, so in essence, you know, a lot of the time we've found that uh, that the anxiety is more on the clinician's part. That patients aren't um, aren't as um, worried about stuff. And in fact, they find we have found. In fact, we've got some pretty good research, and we've got a fair amount of data that we've actually published on this as well. Um, uh, with another article that just came out yesterday, and another one that's coming out next week. But it's. Um, uh, that, that really shows that, in fact, actually, it's very highly beneficial to the majority of patients. There are some patients where um, they get more anxious about, about things or they read it and stuff. And so a little of it is about marshalling expectation and setting expectation. But, but it, it, it especially lends itself uh, to cognitive behavioral approaches. The clinicians that we find have the greatest hesitance about this are those that are psychodynamically trained. And I was trained in both a psychodynamic model as well as cognitive behavioral approaches. Um, and you know, in, in a psychodynamic model, you may be a step or two ahead of the patient and you're always waiting for that kind of tip of the tongue to get there before you kind of make an interpretation. So a lot of clinicians worry that it'll be a premature interpretation on the note. Um, there's a lot of ways to kind of 
put that in there in a, in a safe way uh, without it being problematic. And the only populations that we've had where there's consistent worry has been really an understandable worry is really around uh, patients where you're dealing with someone with domestic violence um, or any kind of violence in some way or another. And some, that's part of the question a little bit with, with clinicians when they struggle is, who is the note intended for? So in some practices, some interdisciplinary practice in particular, the note may be intended for the eyes of the staff, but in fact, actually, patients have a right to access to the record, um, and they've always had it. Well, they've not had, always had access. It's really back in the 70s is when federal legislation uh, came forward, and actually that legislation was founded at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center uh, by the then president who wrote the legend, wrote that, and then that became uh, part of the, uh, the template for the federal, federal laws, but they have access. So all opening notes does, it just makes it quicker access. So some patients with a trauma history, when they read, so a lot of clinicians, when they write their notes, and I do this as well, when I'm, whenever I've seen a trauma patient, and particularly say, for instance, someone that maybe is a, a rape crisis survivor, um, you know, oftentimes you document a lot of the details about the assault or the nature of the trauma, um, because you're trying to validate the patient's experience. But then when that patient reads that note at home, uh, if they're by themselves, they may not have the supports around to kind of, because it's a recapitulation of the experience. And so that becomes a little bit difficult for some of them. Um, and so you, it's more about setting expectations with them about when they might read their note. Um, and there are some patients where, in fact, I mean, I can think of several patients in my own practice, one of whom took him, he had, his notes were open for the whole time, but it took him two and a half years before he read his first note. He was terrified that my note would simply, uh, you know, um, confirm his fears that he was the worst thing imaginable, you know, so, um, and when he read it, it was relieving to him, but it took him a long time. That's not uncommon. So part of the, the whole thing about open notes is, for us as clinicians is thinking through who is this going to be beneficial to and who might it be detrimental to? And is that a matter of kind of thinking through the expectations with them so that they do that in a, a, in a supportive way? Um, I'll, I'll give you one example of that. I had a patient, I was seeing, a, I had a long-term therapy group that I was running um, and um, all of my notes were open up to all my patients and she wanted to make sure she participated in, the, in that. So she would read her notes um, the group was on a Tuesday. I dictate the note, uh, then usually the next day comes back from the dictation service. I sign it. As soon as I sign it, it's then available to her to be seen. Um, and so by the end, towards the end of the week, it would be available usually by Thursday or so um, for her to see. She would read the note and then she would decompensate. She would kind of hole up in her apartment and not go out. Um, and she just was traumatized by the note. She felt like it was saying she was a horrible person and all kinds of things. Um, the group asked her if they could see one of her notes, um, because when, when she was telling them about this, and um, uh, when they read the note, it wasn't that at all. It was a complete distortion for, for, for her, and she realized that she was distorting, distorting it, and so she, the group advisor, I didn't even have to do any of the work here, they said, you know, only look at your note before you come to one of your, to see your individual therapist or your group therapist, or you have good supports around and don't read it at other times. And so she began to do that. And after a couple of years, it, it was, um, she now was able to, she was able to read her notes, you know, anytime without any problem. And that was a little bit of a harbinger of telling how she was doing in terms of her, her own progress in that regard. So, you know, it's a little bit, you know, kind of selective. 
Um, I can also think about some obsessive compulsive patients that, um, that I've worked with who don't want to read the note because they tend to ruminate about things a lot. And so they don't want to just keep spinning their wheels, obsessing about something or other. So they tend not to look at it uh, you know, over time. And what we found with a lot of patients is that for some, you know, I've had some patients that they print out their note every time after every session, uh, they'll print it out as a reminder of the work we're doing in between sessions because they have a hard time, uh, you know, usually with libidinal object constancy issues or what have you, holding on to things. And so they, the note is there as a reminder. So it's carrying forward the therapy in between sessions. And so that's, that's where I find it's been helpful for some. But a lot of patients also find that a lot of our notes over time are pretty redundant, quite frankly, and they are, you know, particularly when you're seeing patients in ongoing work, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, they, they lose their effectiveness. So a lot of patients tend to only then look at them episodically every few months or every month or whatever it might be, uh, rather than regularly. So that's been the experience so far. Steve, you know, I, I, I want to take a step back, but I have lots of questions. And, you know, part of which is interesting, I think, to others is that uh, this, there's been whispers about open notes, at least, not, it seems like you've been doing this for a decade or so. And, uh, you know, but many of us, I think, who will be listening, it seems to, we heard whispers, is this for real? What does it mean not be able to find much info now, now that it's here and there's fear? So when I say it's here, so what I want to establish first is, can you speak a little bit more to, uh, to the new legislation that's really implementing uh, the, the Cures Act rules? Can you speak to that specifically? And then I'd like to ask some questions about kind of a lot of the content you discussed. Sure, glad to. So, so the Cures Act was supposed to have gone into effect. Well, it, first, let's step back a little bit. It was passed in 2016 under the Obama administration, and it was passed as bipartisan legislation. And it really, probably the way to think about it for anybody viewing this is, is that HIPAA coming of the computer age. That's really what it amounts to, is HIPAA catching up with social media and all of the, the computer age, right? So, um, and, and that's really in the essence of it. And it's really about interoperability, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the legislation. I mean, opening notes is one component of the Cures Act, right? So that's one component. It's over, you know, I think it's 1400 pages or something like that, the whole bill itself. So it's a massive bill uh, and there's a lot of components, but it was supposed to have gone into effect last uh, November. Um, that got delayed uh, till this April 5th um, is when it goes live, so next week. And and with that, uh, that really requires that um, uh, that inst health networks have to make available notes to patients uh, immediately. Now, what they mean by immediately is open to interpretation, right? So we hear different networks are opening, interpreting that differently. And there are some exceptions to what has to be opened up. Psychotherapy notes are an exception to having to be opened up. And part of that is predicated upon the fact that there is... A, a greater expectation of privacy in psychotherapy notes than there are a lot of other health-related notes. Um, so there is some, that's an exception to that. But what I'll say is that a lot of institutions and health networks that are opening up their, their, their notes, if they're opening up on the medical side, there's enough literature and research out there that many of them are just saying, we're not gonna segregate the mental health notes separately. We're just gonna, if we're opening up medical notes, let's just open everything up. So that's what we're finding. But places do have the option to segregate the note. And part of what we've been encouraging folks to do is to find out from their networks, how those networks 
put in some safety concerns where they can segregate a note if it in, in fact is necessary. So the domestic violence, for instance, is the one area where in fact actually, um, you know, most of us tend to, uh, domestic violence victims tend to get services for free rather than billed for because just the generating the bill itself, if the subscriber happens to be the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator, that can in itself engender greater danger to the patient. And so, so that is a problem. Now, we also know that some patients, some people can be strong-armed into opening up their notes. And so, so that should those notes be segregated in some way? So most health systems are putting in a, a, a uh, ways to uh, pull a note out of the mainstream, if you will, if there's particularly private information. We also find that that's true with adolescents, for instance, you know, where uh, they don't want their parent or their proxy to be able to see their note. And so the, uh, the Cures Act, what it, a lot of it is, is that there's heavy fines if there is inform, what's called information blocking. So if you block notes, you can't say, I'm going to block all domestic violence patients from seeing their notes. Well, it might be that, in fact, you have to do it on a case-by-case -case basis. So you can't just say that because... If, if a domestic violence victim you're working with, uh, if the perpetrator of the abuse is deceased or no longer in the picture, and that's a long or a moot issue, it's a long ago issue, well, that person should have access to the note if there's no clinical reason not to. If it's a current issue, then you might want to, in fact, segregate the note and keep it private. So, so the Cures Act allows for, if there is a potential for physical harm to the patient, right? And it's interesting that they use the language of um, physical harm they didn't put in like emotional harm because a lot of clinicians are hearing it as well. My patient's going to get upset in reading this or someone might get upset, but there is a second exception that allows for um, if it's um, uh, there's a privacy exception. And if there's an expectation of privacy that that note remain between the clinician of record and the patient and not others for others eyes, then you can segregate the note or hold it back in that way. Uh, I will also add, because you, you know, the, the population that you're, the audience that you may have here, is that uh, one question that I, we get a lot is, you know, are private practitioners obligated to have, uh, you know, open up their notes in that way? And they're not if they're not, if they, if you don't have a secure um, platform to uh, offer the notes in, then there is no obligation to do that at this point, uh, because it's what's called infeasibility. Right? So if it's not feasible to open up the note, then you don't have to do it because you don't have a secure platform. Um, this is, the law goes into effect this April for opening up notes, but there's another phase of the, of the uh, Cures Act that goes into effect in October of 2022 uh, that is requiring all health networks and health insurers to provide uh, secure apps uh, to patients so that they can see their records. Um, in that way. So there's going to be a change where all notes will be opened up in that regard. And one of the bigger changes here is we've been opening up notes on the ambulatory side, and we have a lot of research and data on the ambulatory side where we've seen it, how effective it is with inpatient care, particularly for patient engagement um, and improving trust. But this is now opening up on the inpatient side, opening up notes on the inpatient side. And that's a, that's a big change. So we don't have as much research. There's, there's some research, a little out of a couple parts of the country and some out of Great Britain, but there's not as much research on that in terms of the effects on open notes on the inpatient side. 
I think what you talked about was the sense of uh, the fear of harm, at least. And it sounds like excluded psychotherapy notes currently. Psychiatry seems like that would be more on a medical side, probably is open. Uh, am I, is that correct? They, they are. Yes, they are. And, you know, it's interesting because in, uh, in psychiatry, you know, you can, if you're tapping uh, what, what um, just in terms of logistics, if you're tapping the mental health benefit, you might be able to make an argument that's in the psychotherapy benefit side. But in for psychopharmacologists, for instance, if you're tapping the medical benefit, particularly if it's parity diagnosis or what, ha what have you, then you start and you're tapping that medical diagnosis, that benefit, then in fact, those notes might be obligated to be opened up and likely would be. That's a helpful distinction. You know, when I think about harm also from a psychotherapy perspective and, 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 and weighing uh, some of the things that you had discussed is when I think you mentioned OCD, but when I think about specific subcategories of like fear of being a pedophile and what entails in those type of exposures in detail, or in a biopsychosocial assessment where a history of drug abuse, illegal activity, uh, felonies, prostitution, what have you in there and others other than a client getting access uh, you know, these are concerns uh, that, that come to mind. Uh, and then would you, you know, can you speak to those concerns? Yeah, glad to. So, so this is, you know, where a, a lot of clinicians worry that in fact, what we're going to be doing is saying we're kind of abdicating all to patient autonomy and the patient decides what goes in the record or not. And we have to remind ourselves that in fact, actually, we are obligated under professional autonomy and professional integrity. We have standards that we have to meet, right? Your, your note is to document to your, not just to the, the patient. And the way to think about documenting a note is always think about writing your note as if your patient's sitting on your shoulder and seeing the note, right? So they're the Pinocchio of your life, if you will, right? Um, the, or the, the Jiminy Cricket. Um, so the, um, and, and, but you have to do it for your cross coverage, for the emergency department, for your cross coverage folks, whoever it might be, and for the insurance company, if you get audited. And I know, you know, it's less likely in private practices to get audited, but I know in our hospital, I had to oversee and deal with health insurance company audits all the time. And they're always looking to exclude paying for, for services because they're a business and that's how they stay in businesses by not paying, paying their things. So they're always looking for ways to kind of opt out in, in some regard. And, uh, the, um, I've lost the thread here a little bit. So it's, uh, um, no worries. We're talking about, you know, the concern about individuals with, uh, in a social bio history or, yeah. or, or subtype of, of OCD. That's very, could be very explicit with yeah. regard to fear of pedophilia or murder or things and exposures that go along with that. And I think I heard one of your responses earlier was really about selective segregation. And I, when I hear about that in a way of, of being, thinking about it from a case-by-case -case perspective about protecting the client, what standards does one follow for segregation? Are there any out there? What, how do you process yeah. that? It's a good, and that's a very good question. And I would say that, for instance, in my own staff, the, the, who were choosing to do what we call monitor a note, uh, when I looked at the notes, most of the time, they were not, uh, they didn't need to be segregated in that way. The VA system, which opened up their notes, um, in their entire system, including on the inpatient side, by the way, back in 2013, um, you know, they, they have some, many of their uh, VA systems have um, places where they uh, will look over a note um, to see what's there. Um, and, uh, and so someone, it goes to a committee who decides whether in fact, actually it needs to be monitored or not, or it's segregated in that way. And most of the time they found that very few notes actually needed to be segregated. But if you take the fears that you have that you said before, 
what we've found is generally is talking with the patient directly about what you will or will not document because we are obligated to do things, right? So if a patient tells me, don't tell my psychopharmacologist that I'm not taking the medications that, you're, that they've been prescribing, I will usually say to them, you need to let them know that you're not doing that. And I am obligated to let to document that in the note and I'm gonna be communicating with them. And so it might be better if they hear from you first rather than you. So a little bit of it is a negotiation around those kinds of things about what you're gonna put in or not put in. If you had somebody like the example you gave about somebody that was worried about, oh my God, do I, am I subject to pedophilia or I may have these urges or whatever. Um, we usually kind of use kind of more soft language in those kinds of ways. We, and the clinician may keep side notes, you know, process recordings or what have you, separate, separate notes in those regard. And so you may put in, like if I'm working with someone that with a history of um, childhood trauma, they've been they a sexual abuse survivor, I may just put in difficult childhood uh, memories or difficult childhood issues or struggling with who they are as a person you know, things like that. I'll put in some language that any clinician seeing that would know, oh, I should ask more about that if there's a future clinician there or a covering clinician. But I may not put in the details about that um, because, uh, because I'm, you know, in case that I'm worried, particularly in our system where all notes are open to all other providers, right? So all the other, you know, everybody can see the notes in the system that I'm operating in, right? So all the other clinicians, you know, the um, you know, can see those notes. Um, I would be a little bit more cryptic about those notes and soft sell it, but I would tell the patient there. What we found in our research is the biggest thing patients are looking for is concordance between what was written in the note and spoken about in the office. That's what they're looking for. And if there's not concordance, most patients, you know, uh, that are at the beginning of a therapeutic relationship where they're worried about is my clinician gonna understand or appreciate me? That's always the fear that's there. And so when they see that concordance, that really is helpful. The patients that we found in our research that have struggled with the relationship have been those where there isn't concordance about things. And so what you wanna do is not ambush somebody. And I'll give you a classic example that we see in a lot of the notes that uh, is pretty universal. And we see this on the medical side more than certainly in the mental health side, but we've seen it in mental health notes. And that's the documentation of someone being obese or morbidly obese. And unfortunately uh, for in the medical side, the docs or nurses don't get reimbursed. If they don't put in their note, patient is morbidly obese or dealing with morbid obesity in the note because the ICD-10 you know, doesn't, if you don't put it in that note, you don't get reimbursed. And so there's a lot of pejorative language that comes out of the fact that we do notes that are really for billing purposes um, in that way. And we're obligated to put down uh, a mental illness diagnosis. If you're billing for, um, uh, you know, uh, for, for psychotherapy, you're obligated if you're using a health insurance plan to put down a mental illness diagnosis. You can't put down a, a V code or an S code. It, you won't get reimbursed. And so explaining that to patients is really important. And that's also tricky when you're doing a provisional diagnosis or a differential diagnosis in the beginning and just saying to them, I'm gonna, I have to cover the gamut. Those are my obligations. So it's really just not ambushing patients. Steve, I want to go back to, you talked about having the discussion and uh, negotiation about the notes. You know, what, what popped to mind is on the medical side, as well as the psychotherapy side, can you omit when someone reports a particular symptom or a concern? I would imagine if a lab came up anemia, just say in medical, you couldn't just admit that. And so my, my concern comes up is that if there's a concern about drug use and it comes up in the assessment, it's probably good for that clinician to have that, remember that for down the road or some other purposes. Yeah. Is it ethically or legally uh, appropriate 
to omit or are there things not to omit? And what are the standards for which psychotherapists can follow so that we can make sure we're doing uh, what's best for the client, but also staying within ethical and legal bounds? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, it's what I would say is that you really want to kind of, you do the note that meets your professional standards at all times, you know, that, that we are obligated to do differential diagnosis and to kind of put in what is going on with the person in some regard, a symptom picture. Um, but it's, it's, very, uh, it's very tricky about how much detail. And that's really more on a case-by-case -case basis. You know, it's kind of thinking about the old DSM. You know, when I was dealing with insurance companies and dealing with coverage, we used the GAF scores, right? The Global Assessment of sure. Function Scores is the best argument for, you know, for particularly for patients that are ongoing therapy patients, where in fact, there isn't a lot of movement. But you know, as a clinician, that if this person stops therapy, they were going to regress in some regard. And that's usually what you have to do is the argument. And you think about it in terms of the GAF score, that was the best argument for that. So we would usually document around GAF scores more than anything else about what the potential is for the decline in that, in that regard um, if the person were to terminate therapy or stop therapy uh, in some regard. And that was probably the most helpful thing uh, for us in terms of abridging um, when we got audited by insurance companies uh, for that. So that's a kind of an obligation. But in terms of the, you know, what you put in, in the note itself, the, the, the lurid detail, that's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. And so I can think of, you know, patients that I worked with that were at a high lethality level. My notes were much more detailed about that. So I'll give you an example. So I, had a, I worked with a lot of um, uh, patients with a borderline personality, and I worked with a lot of cutters. Um, and, um, but, you know, I would try to make sure in my notes, particularly because my cutters would come in to the emergency room sometimes that, that they would, um, their notes, uh, I had to distinguish between when they were suicidal versus when the cutting was really a self-soothing mechanism, right? So cutting for most patients, uh, you know, cutters, they're, they're usually an anxiety relieving uh, thing uh, as opposed to when they were suicidal. So I would put in some pretty good graphic detail about ways for clinicians to distinguish that. But that's probably because I'm needing to do that in a cross coverage system for patients of mine that ended up coming into the emergency room pretty regularly. Um, so that, so I would put in a lot of detail. A little bit is going to be case by case basis, unfortunately. So it's hard yeah. to give good guidance in that. Understood. But understood. They, the, the uh, you know, if I put on a legal hat um, in that way, uh, it's usually we're held to the standard of what the reasonably prudent therapist or clinician would write. You know, what would be the reasonably prudent uh, clinician? That's usually the standard in most states that I would say is, how would your colleagues view this? No. I'm sure that could be a whole series of podcasts for us to, to, to look at. <laughs> I, th I think a good way to kind of, as, as we begin to close, is talk about, I could see how open notes based upon Scott Miller's work uh, about informed uh, patient care uh, as a feedback and, and the improvement that that gets and how open notes uh, would be helpful. Could you speak to a little bit more about the research? Uh, is it specific to modal psychotherapy modalities? Is it uh, attachment? Is it CBT? Uh, is it some other methods? Uh, what, what have you found in the literature you've read and seen that you spoke of? Sure, glad to. So I would say the majority of what we're seeing, and, and this is true around the country, I would say CBT is the predominant mode of, uh, of therapy across the country, really, in, 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 uh, for the most part. But we've seen its applicability in really in all modalities now. So we've seen it across the board, and we've got, I think, enough experience. So, you know, if we think about before the Cures Act is going into effect, as of this past winter, we had 55 million patients that were in the open notes 
uh, program, right? They were across the across the country, so we're participating in that. And about a quarter of them are, you know, are those systems that have mental health notes that have opened up. And you would think that, in fact, actually, if there was a lot of um, uh, difficulty with this, you would have been hearing it across the country as places have opened up. And it's really been remarkably quiet uh, in that regard. So I, I think it's really what we've seen is that it's helped the, the, our literature and all the literature, particularly uh, Steve Dobsha at the VA has published some wonderful literature um, uh, in uh, psychiatry journals, as have we actually. Um, and uh, the, it really shows that it's really been effective across the board with a variety of different populations. Um, what we, we haven't done big studies of major mental illness. Um, we have a couple embarked on that right now. Um, there's some groups that are doing that, particularly up in the Toronto area. The uh, Center for Addiction and Mental Health uh, up there is doing that. They've opened up, I think it's 1,100 inpatient um, substance use and uh, psychiatric uh, inpatient beds are uh, notes for a while now. And I think it's 1,000 or 1,100 outpatient therapists and they're studying that. And there's other places, the University of Colorado is doing this as well. So, so there's a lot of studies going on about, about different populations to see the effects of that. And most of it is, we're finding it very helpful. Um, I will add, there's one other thing that we're embarking on uh, called our notes. And our notes uh, is, if you think about this on this psychopharm uh, side, particularly with stable patients or patients who are an ongoing uh, psychopharm seen periodically, they were asking them two questions. You know, has anything happened to your health since your last visit? Um, that's one question and that would be good to know about. And so the docs and nurses can tee up labs or other kinds of things if there's something. You think uh, particularly in the medical side, but we're thinking about it on the mental health side too. And then the second question is, is there anything you wanna make sure you attend to or, or address in the, that we should address in your upcoming visit, in your next upcoming visit? And so, and we limit the number of characters and that's a page, our essentially compulsives can't write 50 page tomes. It's a limited character thing, but that becomes a permanent part of the record. Uh, as well. And we're thinking that that may actually be a really good thing for psychopharmacists, uh, for pharmacology in particular, uh, to be able to kind of address things ahead of time, rather than waiting for the patient to get to the office. And now you order labs, you could order them ahead of time if you needed to do that, if something was going something was cooking. So I look, I look forward to seeing Steve, what, what happens as a result of that one, one final question, because you talk yeah. about the research being helpful and effective. Can you conceptualize for me, what was effective and helpful? What was being measured? So we mentioned that, you know, that we were measuring basically a couple of different things, you know, we, but um, we measured uh, after one year of people being on open notes, right, both the patients and also the providers, you know, we, we measured their fears, their anxieties to begin with, whether it was more labor with you know, and they were all worried about it being more labor intensive, it would be more problematic, all that stuff, all those fears are there. And then a year later, we measured it again. And we basically found that all the fears did not materialize. Most of my staff found that they started writing better, more cogent notes, more concise notes. I can think of one, one of my staff people who was writing a progress note that was taking her 23 to 25 minutes per time. Uh, and she got back down to the average of the most of my staff was seven to nine minutes to write a progress note. Um, and so she was writing too many details. Uh, and so they've, they've become more efficient in that way. So we studied that and measured that. And then we studied, you know, at the end of the year, did the pay anybody who did patients want to continue? And did providers, therapists want to continue? Um, and they all did. 
And we found that across the board in all the other systems. So that's been there. And we tried to find out, is there any kind of um, untoward outcomes, anything that they've learned from it? And that's why I kind of mentioned before about, we know from, uh, particularly from the VA studies about patients with trauma, when they read the note, it's a recapitulation. And so we have to think about some populations where it could be a little bit um, problematic, but by and large, and I would say in our practice, we started with 440 patients. We've now got over 5,000 patients that we've, you know, had that we've studied. Um, and, you know, we're not just not seeing the issues there. So it's been really, a, it's been a nice thing to add on to the toolkit for, for clinicians. And again, it works for some and it's helpful for some and helpful for probably most. And it's not so helpful for some, for some others, you know, it's just so necessary. This has been uh, very insightful and timely and uh, fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you coming out, uh, Steve, and, and talking to, to us. I think very good timing, and I think a lot of people would uh, be very interested in our conversation today. Great. Well, thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. And, and Steve, before we wrap up, could you share with our listeners where they can find information online about Open Notes? Oh. Great. Thank you, Aaron, for that question. So, um, because, you know, a lot of times folks think that we in the Open Notes program, that we're selling a product or, or something. We're not. We are purely, quite frankly, a public service. We believe in transparency as part of healthcare. And particularly if you think of, like, you think about it with the COVID, you know, stuff, with, but the distrust in some populations, you know, and that, that the more we can open up and, and be transparent, we think it's an avenue to restoring trust in healthcare. Um, and so that's all we've been working on for all these years is really trying to make it grease the skid. So we're supported by various philanthropies um, and, and all of what we do on our website, uh, we have a mental health toolkit, we have Q&As, we have literature, we have all the research, all of that is there for anybody to utilize in any way they want. We don't charge anything, there's nothing there. It's a free service that we just, you know, you can take and you can adopt whatever we put out there uh, to your own needs in that way. You can plagiarize what's in our system and that's fine by us. That's really what we have. It's there to be just as a public service and a public good in that way. So. That's uh, and it's on the Open Notes website. All of this stuff. And so, what is the web address? It is. Uh, it is just OpenNotes.com, uh, or it is what it is. So that's Perfect. that's all it is. www.OpenNotes.com. Easy um, to remember. That works. Right. <laughs> all right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I think, as Kevin indicated, we could spend hours, you know, dissecting multiple parts of this. So it is very helpful, and we really, uh, really hope to stay in touch with you. And uh, I know as things in October of 2022 take a change, I'm sure we'll be uh, we'd be honored to have you back to discuss further. Uh, how those so. changes will affect uh, private practices. So thank you so much uh, for everyone for listening to this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. Stay safe and healthy. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute and CBI Center for Education, as well as our Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.